Hi, everyone, and welcome to our 10th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Today, we are joined by Marion Tupi of Cato and uh, our own Stephen Hicks. But before I even get into introducing those two, I want to remind all of our attendees on Zoom that you can ask a question in the Q&A um, icon in the lower part of your screen. And then of course, everybody who's joining us on Facebook Live, welcome, welcome. Just type your questions right on into the, uh, the comment section and we will try to get to as many as possible. Uh, so um, again, uh, welcome Stephen and, uh, and, and Marion. Thanks for having us. So Marion uh, of the Cato Institute, my old stomping ground, um, is a senior editor of one of my favorite websites, humanprogress.org. Um, he is a senior fellow for the uh, Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He specializes in globalization and global well-being, uh, as well as the politics of Europe and um, Southern Africa. He is the co-author uh, co of an upcoming book, 10 Global Trends, Every Smart Person Should Know, which I believe is going to be released next month. Um, and uh, the Atlas Society senior scholar, Stephen Hicks, is professor of philosophy at Rockford University, as well as the director of ethics and entrepreneurship. Uh, professor Hicks has written five books explaining postmodernism, um, among them. Uh, he also just wrote the intro to our forthcoming Pocket Guide to Postmodernism. Um, his other books include Nietzsche and the Nazis, Entrepreneurial Living, The Art of Reasoning, uh, uh, Readings for Logical Analysis, and Liberalism, Pro and Con. Marion, Stephen, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. A real pleasure. Pleasure. So Marion, first to you, um, your reputation certainly precedes you. You've got quite a fan base uh, on the board of the Atlas Society, which is only going to grow now that we've learned that you, uh, your gateway drug was uh, reading Ayn Rand in your 20s. Um, and I was also really thrilled to see that in the reading section of um, Human Progress, the reading list, you uh, list abundance. Uh, the future is better than you think by Peter Diamandis, who is the um, who is our honoree at the Atlas Society Gala uh, coming up in October. Um, but uh, first, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you, Marion. Um, who are you, Marion Tupi? What inspired you to pursue pursue this specific uh, line of scholarly work? And, and how has uh, life in quarantine been treating you? Well, I'm crossing my hands because I'm, I'm you know, that should show my degree of uh, comfort um, exposing myself on TV. But uh, um, look, I, I, I was born in uh, uh, communist Czechoslovakia um, uh, when it was still under Soviet uh, occupation. And um, when I was in my early teens, uh, my parents uh, took me and my sister uh, down to South Africa, uh, which was also going through uh, a lot of turmoil, um, where, where there were medical doctors. Uh, from there, I went to Great Britain uh, to get educated 
at the University of St. Andrews. And after that, I came to the United States where I've been with Cato since, uh, I guess, since 2002, so for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I joined Cato to work on economic transition in Central and Eastern Europe from communism to capitalism and also to work on economic development in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I, I think that the reason why I ended up going to Cato and more importantly, why they took me uh, was because I was interested in economic development and the, the broader questions as to why are some countries rich, why are some countries poor. Um, it, it, it is the most fundamental question in economics. Um, and um, it's something that interested me from the get-go because America is the fourth culture, fourth different economic and political system that I've lived under. So I've experienced communism, I've experienced uh, obviously uh, living in an African country, uh, then living in, in Britain and then in America. And uh, really I was just interested in those questions. So that's how I ended up working on economic development. And once you delve deeply into economic development, you realize that the world is in a, a much better state than it was for really tens of, uh, well, thousands of years. So. To make long story short, um, you know, our species are about 300,000 years old. Uh, agricultural revolution happened 12,000 years ago, and throughout that time, we were miserably poor. And then 200 years ago, things just changed fundamentally, and humanity um, really enters the age of abundance that Peter Diamandis talks about in his book. Uh, we live longer, uh, there are fewer wars, fewer conflicts, so we are freer. Uh, still. Um, and all of these good things need to be explained. So, you know, I've been really obsessing about um, reading and reconciling different theories as to why the world is prosperous as opposed to poor. It's the riches of the world that need to be explained, not the poverty. We always were poor. Great. Um, well, Stephen, uh, of course, I know your origin story somewhat, um, and I get to talk to you regularly uh, because we work together. Um, and so I've heard your adventurous tale of getting stuck in Australia when lockdowns were first imposed, and I've just uh, marveled at your your productivity uh, under quarantine, um, the incredible work that you're doing uh, at the Atlas Society, the, uh, the waterfall uh, section of our website, which you've um, been uh, just it's just been flourishing um, but I, I'd love to to um, ask from sort of a personal perspective um, looking at your personal ex- experiences during these challenging times what are the skills or virtues uh, character traits which have served you best that if, if, if you could bottle them and, and give them to to other people um, mm-hmm. which what what skill or trait would that be? Uh, that's hard. Um, probably kind of a, a sense of resilience. You know, there's always something that you can do that uh, there's a, another experiment you can try and that things will work out if you if you keep persisting at it. So I mean, to take the small example, there are worse places in the world than Australia to be stuck in lockdown for a while. But <laughs> you know that uh, uh, eventually you're going to be able to work out the problem and, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, probably the only thing I've noticed is that the shift to online has uh, 
in one way tested my patience a lot more. Because I find that uh, on average, interacting with people in person, even unfriendly people who disagree when I'm traveling around and giving talks and so on, there's a, there's a baseline civility that very few people will cross. So since the lockdowns began, I've been doing a lot more online stuff and actually participating in, in social media more. And it is interesting that the medium does push my patience buttons. I think I'm, I think I'm a very patient guy. You kind of have to be when you're dealing with college students all of the time and, and dealing with uh, intellectual adversaries. But there is a... <laughs> a kind of liberation that seems to happen with a certain sort of person who's more prevalent on social media. So uh, getting my patience game on and paying attention to that's probably the biggest, uh, the biggest one. Yeah, well, uh, Jeffrey Tucker, who was one of our previous guests on the Atlas Society Asks, wrote a very special piece called, um, I think it was The Return of Brutalism. Mm. Um, which, was, of course, was an architecture uh, movement that sprang out of uh, post-World War Europe, but he was also extending it to sort of these, these the everyday, you know, brutalities and, and connecting it also to the lockdowns and the disregard for, uh, for people who are non-essential or, or what, what have you. Um, well, Marion, if I were to ask the same question of you, uh, and you also, when we were just pre-gaming um, before we went live, uh, you were you were talking about DC and that you're seeing sort of a um, a crumbling of of some some civilities. Um, what are the traits that, for you, uh, have um, gotten you through this? And have if you look back and you wanted to bottle bottled Marion Tupi X, what what would that be? you? Well, it's sort of tough to talk about one's personality without sounding like uh, one is boasting and certainly That's what we, yeah, we're objectivists, so boast away. We don't, <laughs> we don't and, have to be humble. Here. Also, it's, it's further complicated by the fact that I think that most uh, personality traits are, are by and large inherited. So it's not like you can go out and say, you know, my punctuality is uh, is uh, something I'm terribly proud of. But I can tell you what I think worked for me and what keeps me sane. I mean, it's one is punctuality. I hate being late for anything, and I absolutely hate it when other people are 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 late for things. Um, perseverance, uh, which Stephen mentioned, is incredibly important. Um, not just because work and output gives you a structure in life, but also because. Uh, it provides you at the end of the day with a product that uh, then you can shop around and show to people, look, I have accomplished certain things. Why don't you, 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 you can put your trust in me uh, to do something else. So I think perseverance, punctuality are those things that are um, most important. Yeah. Well, uh, if I were to bottle your um, optimism, then I think I would, uh, I would become a, a millionaire. But of course, I would bottle your optimism, then I'd um, hoard it, then I'd price gouge it. Uh, and as a result, I'd encourage other competitors to come into the market with their own brand of optimism. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm only half kidding, uh, because while I know that um, optimism is essential to having an objective perspective, um, to staying motivated, uh, to um, being creative. It's not 
I, it's not, I find what people always want to hear. And indeed, one common theme that I, that I run across, even from some of the, the supporters of the Atlas Society, uh, is that, well, trends are so bad, um, debt is unsustainable, the growth of the welfare state is unstoppable, the battle for the minds of the young has been lost, essentially, you know, it's over. Uh, and on a good day, <laughs> when I hear that, um, my, uh, I, I like to say to the discouraged person that I believe the battle, any battle, is only truly lost with no hope of reprieve or reversal until you believe it's lost. Um, but on a bad day, I have to be honest, that, uh, that kind of attitude um, really triggers me. Uh, it's not just that I think it's inaccurate, um, but when you're working your tail off, you know, especially when you know, you're working in the nonprofit space and part of your job is to, uh, to encourage others to come and support your work, uh, when someone comes along and says, eh, doesn't really matter. It's not a lot. It's not, you know, it's not enough. It's too little. It's too late. Might as well just not bother uh, because it's all over. I kind of lose my, shall we say, my light and breezy. <laughs> so in short, um, I, I see kind of a dividing line. I know Stephen and I were um, on a, uh, on a, this uh, international conference this weekend, Friedman Conference, and I see sort of a dividing line uh, in our movement, it's not between conservatives and libertarians. Um, it's, uh, it's between defeatists and optimists. So Marion, is that something that you see, or Stephen, I guess I'll, I'll open it to the two of you, um, or maybe, you know, Marion, you don't get a lot of comers because, you know, people know what your line of work is, or maybe that when you do, you've got so much ammunition, it doesn't bother you because, you just, you know, annihilate it. Well, I, I, I think that there's, there's a lot to unpack in that, uh, in that question. Um, the, the important thing to realize is that rational optimism um, or even factfulness, what we are talking about is comparing the, when you, when you, you can you can you can approach this from two different perspectives. You can either compare the present with the past, and in which case uh, there's a lot of ground for optimism. I mean, uh, we are richer than before. We are healthier. We are freer. Um, uh, slavery was abolished. Uh, women have a vote. Um, black man was elected president. All sorts of things that that have uh, um, that show us that the past that, that the present is better than the past. Now, if you want to compare it with some sort of an imagined utopia, which I don't suggest that you do, then you cannot be but disappointed uh, by the current state of the world. You know, the babies are still dying, people are still going hungry, and so on and so forth. And of course, the belief in human progress as I define, which is essentially that it's backward looking, it is historical, we compare the present with the past, doesn't in any way guarantee that uh, the future is going to um, that the future is going to evolve uh, in a direction that, uh, that most of us would like, freedom-loving people. I mean, uh, there's plenty of scope for ruination in the future. 
um, pandemic, of course, reminds us that, uh, um, that of that. And we have to understand that human progress is not some sort of a linear and steady improvement in, 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 in uh, uh, the state of humanity. I mean, the Europeans between 1814, the end of Napoleonic Wars, and the outbreak of the First World War in 1914 were living through some of the most exciting, most interesting time in the history of the world. Uh, with so many extraordinary um, inventions happening in their midst, including, you know, motor car and electricity and um, the telegraph and so on and so forth. And then uh, Western Europe and much of the world along just descended into unimaginable brutality. So, you know, human progress is about acknowledging that the world is better. It doesn't presume that we cannot mess it up because, of course, we can. Mm. Yeah, well, and um, Stephen, I'm going to ask a going to do a slight twist on that question, but I did want to remind everybody who is um, who's watching, who's in our Zoom, who's on uh, the Facebook live stream. This is an incredible opportunity to be with two of I think the, the best minds on uh, liberty and individualism, abundance and human possibility. So please um, get your questions in. Try to make them short so that I don't have mangle them in trying to um, abbreviate them for you. But uh, yeah, ask your questions in the Zoom chat. Ask your questions uh, in the comment section on the Facebook Live. Um, Stephen, I, uh, before we we uh, we do a transition, just. Uh, uh, piggyback on what Marion was saying, because uh, uh, every year in my, my, my university courses, I use data from uh, uh, the, the Human Progress site and other sites with my undergraduate students. And of course, most of them are tabula rasa to all of this, and they are mostly middle American kids with some international students. So they're like a very good test market. And what's interesting is that most of them have a general vague sense that they are living in, in good times. You know, they know what things were like when their grandparents era, right, and so forth. But nonetheless, they are shocked and, and surprised, and in many cases, initially disbelieving when we look at the human progress data from the site at just how much the progress has been. Uh, now, of course, I use that because I'm, I'm interested in the follow-up questions. Well, what has enabled human beings to achieve that level of progress in the last two or three centuries? And then as Marion was framing it, particularly in the light of the last 10,000 years when things were mostly flatline and then, uh, and then even further back. But there is at the same time uh, a psychological issue that you are speaking to about a divide between libertarian within libertarians or within conservatives and on the left there is a similar dividing line as well and i see it in my students that already some of them are coming in psychologically predisposed to a more pessimistic outlook and you get the feeling that you're never going to talk them out of it even with with very good data and those who are coming in with a more optimistic outlook the the data simply amplifies that and energizes that. So there's a very interesting question about the interplay between our, our personal philosophies, uh, our understanding right, of, the, of the history, and then our, uh, our, our expectations for where we think we can go in the next 10 years or so in our own lives. Um, so Steve, 
Go ahead, Marianne. Uh, yeah, uh, it's certainly something I have encountered, uh, which is that when people do come to the table with a very, very strong uh, commitment to a philosophy of decline, um, and it could be environmentalism, it could be uh, belief in, uh, in the imminent uh, resurgence of fascism or whatever, uh, people are, people ignore the data. In order to maintain the logical coherence of their beliefs, they refuse to look at the data, uh, refuse to consider it. I think that Steven Pinker incidentally found the same thing um, after he published Enlightenment Now. In fact, he told me and he wrote about it, is that some people simply refuse it because it's much more important to them to maintain their uh, their their philosophy and outlook on life uh, to start believing the data would mean dislocation of the uh, of the of the pillars in their lives around which everything sort of uh, revolves. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's interesting, um, uh, and we ask this question a lot at the Atlas Society, which is, you know, um, how many times does collectivism or socialism need to fail? before it is acknowledged as a, as a failed system. Uh, the flip side would be how, many how much progress is, is, is needed, how much uh, factual um, verification of uh, actually things getting better is needed before people change the point of view. And I always say an infinite time, an, an mm -hmm. infinite number, because, um, because one's philosophical outlook uh, you know, and one's moral perspective um, seems to inform the way that we, we approach data. So Stephen, it, could you help us look at pessimism and optimism through an objectivist lens, um, perhaps with regards to the principle of a benevolent universe, uh, the, the concept of evil is impotent, um, where do we draw the line between being, you know, a Pollyanna and evading dark realities um, and choosing a heroic path of pursuing difficult goals uh, despite the pain and risks uh, and suffering that such a path entails? Yeah, yeah, it's another one with a, a lot to unpack in it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I go, uh, I go back to my students in university and Already, by the time many of them are 18 or 19 years old, they will have uh, bought into a, a pessimistic decline story, such as perhaps environmentalism, or uh, or sometimes it's a it's a matter of a far left socialism that says, from their perspective, that capitalism's impending collapse has to be just around the corner, and all of this progress data is uh, is illusory or or short term. Interestingly, I also uh, get that from a significant minority of students who are strongly religious. And when they start looking at the, the data, and so we can say things like, well, you know, human life expectancy has, has more than doubled. And one of the interesting pushbacks is that they're not necessarily convinced that that's a good thing, because from their perspective philosophically, you know, more time on earth is not is not their not their top value so the the sooner you get to heaven the, the better things are or when you push on uh, uh, you know, the advancement of women's rights and equality and opportunities if they're bought into a more traditional view of family structure 
they're also not so sure that even that uh, what we call progress data is in fact progress data. So what it points to is that uh, young people and intelligent young people will uh, adopt very quickly very general philosophical framing principles. Uh, the way initially a philosophy of life is packaged, whether it's a, a left-wing Marxist version or a kind of apocalyptic environmental version or a religious fundamental version. And it does seem to be a constant across the generations that those can be presented attractively to young minds. And these are not unintelligent people and that they will push value buttons that are very deep in those individuals, and then they will make a strong commitment. So I think that is the most interesting territory to, uh, to explore. And it's also interesting how, uh, and I don't want to sound like a, like, a, like a nativist here, but there does seem to be something to being a young person with your whole life ahead of you, and you've just got that kind of all that biological energy and that uh, psychological sense that your whole life is open to you. So there's a natural optimism that uh, most of us seem to have. And so many people, no matter what their crushing life circumstances are, they will nonetheless rise above their crushing life circumstances and have the sense that, yes, I can make something of my life. Whereas there are other people who, with all of their natural human optimism or human energy seem to be able to talk themselves out of it even at a relatively young age. So uh, I don't think there's anything native to it. So uh, you were stunned uh, in the second part of your question asking about kind of the objectivist perspective on uh, the benevolent metaphysics premise and uh, the impotence of evil, right, and so forth. And that certainly I think is, uh, is relevant there. Uh, you know, because in one sense, yes, at a, at, a, at a deep metaphysical level, evil is impotent. And I think that's an important, there's not dark forces of the universe out there, evil spirits that are just, uh, and, and the cosmos designed to make sure that you fail and to crush all of your, your dreams. Uh, it is the case that we have intelligence and we have capacity and certainly in the rich society that we have, we have lots of resources available to us to go out and make the world uh, the way that we wanted to make it. So you know, from the objectivist perspective, uh, you know, what we think of as the benevolent universe premise is that out there, the world is open to our making of it what we want. And then at the same time, human beings do have the capacity. We do have a powerful mind uh, and we can do science and technology and we can work out social uh, principles that enable us to work together instead of against each other. So there is in principle nothing to stop us from achieving whatever goals we want. When we think about evil, you know, we think about people who uh, are, are dishonest and lying. Well, you know, dishonesty doesn't add value to the world. It, 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 uh, you know, dishonest people have to be parasitical on people who are honest and actually creating value. Thieves are parasitical. Uh, the lazy and the unproductive have to live in a parasitical fashion. So parasitism all the way down is a kind of, kind of impotence. So yes, there are people who are, and I think this is what we standardly mean by most evil people, they're typically a mixture. You know, they're not adding value to the process, but nonetheless, using the values that they've acquired parasitically, they can nonetheless damage 
and put obstacles in the place of other people, but it's, it's purely negative. Great. Well, I have actually a few more questions that I want to ask you, but we're getting some even better questions, as usual, from, from the audience. So I'm going to, to get to some of those. Um, Larry Borland asks, what do you think is the impact of religion, not, not organized religion, but belief in a supreme being on optimism? Do you want to take that one, Marianne, or should I? Uh, why did you start? Because I've never encountered this question before, so I'll think about it while you are answering. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know. Interestingly, in in our time in the modern world, um, being religious or not is not the deepest issue. Um, so, if we think, for example, of religious people, and this is too crude, there are some people for whom religion means you know, a sense that the world is, is ordered and benevolent and that there's a wise, perhaps father figure who has created us and is giving us guidance and that ultimately, if we uh, do things the right way, we will be rewarded, you know, uh, perhaps with success in this life, but perhaps in the other world. So uh, they are essentially optimistic and rational people about the world and religion serves as a, a metaphysical underpinning or, or overscoring of that as well. But at the same time, of course, there's another type of religion for whom they think of the world as a nasty, ugly place of sin, uh, you know, lions eating the lambs, and the kind of God they believe in is a very angry, vengeful God that you should be afraid of, that you should literally, you know, quake like the, the original meaning of Quaker, because you know that you are, and like other people, destined likely for hell. And I think that's two very different uh, philosophical worldviews, even though one is, they're both explicitly religious. And you find the same thing among secular thinkers. There are some secular thinkers who think the world is, is causal and orderly and we can figure it out. And in many cases, it's beautiful and we can be progressive and optimistic. And there are, of course, other people who are purely secular in their outlook. And what that means for them is that the world is ultimately ugly and brutal and human life is one of exploitation and conflict and lions savaging the sheep and so forth. And so what you find then is that their official philosophy is a secular, non-religious philosophy. But again, you've got two very different worldviews. So I think minimally we would need a, a two-by-two chart to, uh, to sort out. And in my thinking, for most purposes, not, not all, but uh, let me say many purposes philosophically, but I would say certainly most purposes culturally, the, uh, it's not the religion versus secular divide that's the most important. It's that optimistic versus pessimistic divide that is more important. Um, I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction and, and simply provide a historical narrative of, of, the, uh, of, of religion and progress. And it seems to me clear that ancient authors all the way to the Enlightenment saw humanity and human fortunes of being essentially in a declining mode. Whether it's Bible with its uh, story of Adam and Eve living in paradise or Hesiod and uh, the ages of men uh, or even some uh, um, 
of Eastern religion, religions, um, th they were either believers in a cyclical nature of human affairs, destruction, bit of progress, destruction again uh, eternally, or alternatively, they were believers in a linear decline of human fortunes from some sort of a uh, from some sort of a, uh, a golden age in the past. It is really in the Enlightenment and with the decline of, or rather, when when religion was started to be challenged in the 18th century, that for the first time that coincides with scholars talking about humanity having a shining path ahead of itself. Um, that was never done before. Only, in, uh, only during the Enlightenment, when obviously religion is under attack, uh, that people are starting to see the possibility of human improvement indefinitely into the future. Uh, that's certainly my reading of, of history. Now, I don't know what that means about the interaction between God and uh, religion and, and human progress, but those are the basic um, the historical trends in how humanity perceived progress. Yeah. Let me second exactly what uh, what Marion just said, and I think that's exactly right for the, the long sweep history, history analysis. But when I think that uh, through a... The important thing to me is, uh, is not so much the metaphysical shift, do you believe in God or not, but what does that imply for the human condition? Because what starts to happen then with, in the Renaissance with the rise of humanism is when you stop believing so much in God, what that then means is you put more focus on human beings and there's a psychological shift that becomes essential there. If you believe there's an all-powerful God and that God is calling the shots, then at least by implication, that disempowers human beings. That means that psychologically you process yourself as not the primary agent in your life. There's something out there that is going to determine what happens to you. And that has to be deeply unsettling and, and, and disempowering. But to the extent that you shift your focus to human beings, then you start looking at human beings and what they can do. And at least that puts you in, uh, this is an, an anachronistic metaphor, puts you in the driver's seat and just being in the driver's seat as a human being. I, for better or worse, am calling the shots. That's profoundly empowering. And right. All right. I, I just have one quick comment on that and that I think that uh, human response to the COVID pandemic is a perfect example of the mental switch between uh, essentially fatalism to one of hope. You know, when uh, the, the Black Plague hit Florence, you know, we have the stories of the Decameron and also uh, uh, Boccaccio who wrote Decameron um, provided some uh, eyewitness accounts of what was happening in Florence at the time. And obviously the only thing that people could do was to flee from the city, um, uh, maybe rent a house somewhere in the countryside and wait for the plague to go away or alternatively die. And, and they had this concept of the wheel of fortune. You know, one day you are happy and healthy and alive and next day you are dead and, and that's it. <coughs> the only thing that could save you uh, was, uh, they believed, was prayer. Now, interestingly enough, 
human response to COVID is the exact opposite of that. Humans throughout the world do not pray to God. They don't sacrifice, they don't throw virgins into volcanoes in order to make the pandemic go away. We have internalized as a species, not just in the West, but also in Africa and in Asia and in Latin America, the notion that the only thing that can get us out of this crisis is new knowledge produced by scientists. And that to me is a revolutionary change in the way that human beings think about themselves and their response to the challenges thrown in their way by, 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 uh, by uh, reality. Yeah, I think that's very well said, exactly. All right, well, we're gonna switch gears here with a question from um, Arthur Holst. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's also one that this abundant perspective and, and, and the longer sweep of history uh, can speak to. Arthur, Arthur asks, as a longtime objectivist, I have often struggled with how to respond to the emotionalism around the Black Lives Movement. What is the best way, in your view, to address a rational view to that audience? Mm. Mm. Are you going to take this easy one, Stephen, first? <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, uh, I think at a minimum, there are two Black Lives movements, right, that are, that are out there. Um, there's one that is, uh, I think, the one that most people think of when they think of Black Lives Matter, that we're trying to be inclusive. All human beings should have the, the same rights and that, uh, uh, that there's, a, there's a problem of racism, whatever degree it is, and we, by golly, we should be able to solve this one. And their, uh, their, their problem of disproportionate police brutality with respect to racial minorities, and damn it, we should be able to solve that problem as well. So I think that's, uh, uh, that's fine. You can talk with those people, and uh, we can agree with those people significantly, uh, because those are exactly the issues that all decent people are, 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 are worrying about. But then, of course, uh, uh, we know that explicitly a significant portion of the Black Lives uh, Matters movement is exclusionary. It's a, it's a kind of racism itself that is using the, the vast majority of decent people as a cover for an anti-agenda uh, on, on a, lumber of, uh, a number of dimensions, and that nothing you say to them is going to, uh, to, to change their minds, that we live in a deeply racist uh, uh, society and that we just need to have some sort of revolution and, and, uh, and blow it up. So I think the, the, the best rational response is to take a movement like that and break it down to its subgroups and make sure that in your responses you are targeting your responses to the right subgroup. So the other thing I also think about is uh, um, you know, to the extent that any of these movements and, and Black Lives Matters is I think raising our consciousness, if I can use that language, about some, some issues, and there will be some good that will come out of it. But the, uh, the excesses and the, the ideologically uh, um, uh, bad elements within the, the Black Lives Matter, they, they will out. And uh, uh, you know, one good thing about your ideological enemies is you don't stop them when they're making a mistake. So to the extent that there are people out there who are actually racists and who are anti-American and anti-civilization to the extent that they come out, 
of the woodwork and publicly announce what they are about, that informs us and puts us in a better position to fight back. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it should be really easy to convince people that, uh, you know, that, that every American needs to, that it's possible to hold two ideas in mind. One, that uh, uh, disproportionate, um, uh, disproportionate actions by the police and police brutality is a bad thing, but at the same time, <coughs> that um, 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 uh, violence and rioting are a bad thing at the same time. I mean, these two are not mutually exclusive, and they, we, we should be able to keep that in mind. Um, but there is a danger here uh, that Stephen already alluded to, uh, which is that um, our civilization, to the extent that it works, is based on certain core principles and those are being threatened. And there, I think that we need to be on our guard. What are those? Uh, one is freedom of speech. It's incredibly important because if you cannot speak and think, uh, then you cannot correct mistakes uh, that your society may be, may be committing. Uh, the other one is equality before the law. Um, clearly, we, we need to have a society where um, certain people don't, uh, where everybody faces um, um, consequences for their actions um, so that it's not okay to burn down a convenience store. There should be consequences for that. And of course, um, defense of private property. And it seems to me that increasingly all three are being, uh, being undermined by that second type of uh, activism that, that Stephen mentioned. So we need to be on guard against that. Um, and when it comes to people like that, I'm not entirely sure that you can talk to them. I mean, you could ask them what makes them think that out of the ashes of the old society, a better one would emerge. Uh, what um, revolutions can they point to that ended up um, uh, in a, uh, moving the society in a better direction? Um, that's especially relevant to minorities. Um, I don't know any revolutions that have really uh, resulted in uh, in elevation of minorities, certainly not in the short to medium term. So, th yeah, that's that's all I have to say on that. No, that's great. Okay, uh, let's see. Jerry Bigger, um, why is it that, uh, kind of similar to a theme that we addressed earlier, but um, uh, why is it that socialism keeps being advocated even though all versions have failed, could it be an ethical perspective? Altruism and the sanction of the victim keeps pulling people towards collectivism. Yeah. And that also gets to a question, Stephen, you and I uh, were talking about last night, which is that, um, is it possible, you know, as Marion said, to be holding these two different uh, concepts in our head that we are seeing a lot of progress um, in scientific fields, in technological fields, um, but that perhaps we're seeing a flatlining or even a regression in um, ethical or uh, moral or political uh, spheres. Well, I, I, let me try the second one first because I think it's easier than the first one. The, the, the second question, I've come to believe that there is almost nothing that we cannot solve in the area of uh, uh, 
you know, technological progress, scientific progress. I mean, there are sunny uplands uh, lying ahead of us in terms of discovery of uh, new drugs and uh, new ways of doing things that have that can that can produce tremendous amount of abundance and happiness around the world in the future. But um, that same logic doesn't really apply to the structure of human society. Um, Aristotle talked about three ways that you can organize a society, democracy, oligarchy, and uh, dictatorship. Uh, maybe you can add to that totalitarianism, but basically it's, uh, we, we have been moving along that line from democracy to oligarchy to dictatorship and back again for the last 2,000 years, maybe two and a half thousand years. And I don't, so I, I don't know um, where or how much can we count on a new society, new, new uh, ways of organizing society to come forward. When it comes to socialism, my thinking on that goes something like this. Um, when you see the same idea fail time and time again, and there is apparently nothing that can be done in order to keep um, people like Owen Jones in UK or um, Ocasio-Cortez here in the United States from pursuing socialist ideas, I then have to resort by trying to analyze human nature and see what it is in human nature that makes us susceptible to socialist thinking. Certainly zero-sum thinking is, in my view, deeply enshrined uh, or embedded in, in our brains. Um, you know, for 10,000 years, um, uh, people who got more, got more by taking away from people who by necessity therefore got less. And th that must be deeply embedded in our minds. Also, um, access to unequal spoils, either of food or war or uh, women, by which I mean the, the ability to reproduce, mm -hmm would have been heavily resisted by our ancestors in the, in the uh, era of evolutionary adaptiveness. Um, because if you want to survive, you have to make sure that you get some food and some ability to pass your genes on. And so that when people emerge in your midst who are, uh, who are taking larger slice of the cake, so to speak, you will be compelled to take them down. And uh, that may be something that is deeply embedded into our psyche. I mean, we see it amongst the chimps, uh, where if a male becomes, if an alpha male becomes too dominant of his uh, group, um, other males will uh, uh, form an alliance to take him down. Um, so some remnants of that uh, are probably still enshrined in our minds. That's how I look at it. Yeah. I think the, the evolutionary psychology line is interesting. I'm not fully convinced by it mm -hmm. uh, just because it does seem that when we are young, uh, we experience both zero-sum and win-win transactions within our immediate family and, and social circle. And it does seem like children can learn and internalize a zero-sum way of thinking or they can learn and internalize a mutually beneficial, uh, positive sum way of interacting with their, their family unit. 
And I think uh, probably then when we're young and impressionable, uh, your family circumstances are going to predict for many people where they, where they end up. But independent of that, I think uh, an interesting greater challenge, and this might uh, explain some of the persistence of socialism is when we try to scale up, say beyond our immediate family or our immediate social circle, and then we start to think about uh, a village as a whole, right, or a clan as a whole, or a nation as a whole, or, or even globalization right, as a whole, that in order to scale those principles up requires uh, an education and a training of the human conceptual faculty. So I think one explanation for the persistence of socialism is, uh, is going to be a lack of cognitive development. That it is in fact difficult and it is an achievement to be able to scale up the kinds of principles of a market-friendly, uh, technologically friendly, open global society. And I don't, I'm not sure that a lot of people, or uh, I don't want to put numbers to this, uh, that are, are able to conceive of that. It's just, it's beyond their conceptual ability and that the principles just sound like words at a high level. So from their perspective, they're comfortable within thinking at the level of family or, or village or tribe, but beyond that, they just need to have the idea that there's got to be someone in charge, right? And maybe it's going to be a God looking out for the big picture or a government looking out for the big picture because I, I can't grasp those principles and think at that level. And so by default, they're setting themselves up for a more collectivized uh, type of uh, uh, thinking. Now, that's just one cognitive constant uh, across the generations. And that would just then indicate to the extent in any generation you have people who are not yet cognitively able to grasp the very abstract principles of a free society, they're going to default to a more primitive understanding of social organization. And one of those is going to be socialism. Good. All right, Marion, did you have something to add? And then I think we might have time for another question or two. We've got about 10 more minutes. Yeah, I mean, all I would say is it would be very interesting to see uh, the extent to which um, people will, uh, will partake in the win-win situation depending on how closely they are genetically tied to the people around them. We mm -hmm. obviously expect to share with our families um, uh, much more than we would with, uh, uh, with, with the rest of humanity and um, cut each other's more breaks uh, when, we are, when we are surrounded by our, uh, our uh, familial uh, ties. Um, and um, that, that, that's just a way of saying that it's possible that even in the animal kingdom, people will behave differently depending on the level of their genetic, uh, uh, animals will behave differently depending on their genetic connection to, to the people around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, all right, we have a question here from John Fariello. Um, Given where we are now, how does the US deal with communist China on trade, intellectual property, on defense, and the crackdown on Hong Kong. Is that something either of you? No. 
perspective on? Well, uh, let, let me say I'm not a, an expert on foreign policy. And uh, I, I can think in general principles, you know, free trade is, uh, is preferable. But I understand when there are um, other issues, national security and so forth involved, uh, exactly where those lines are drawn, then, then uh, uh, there will be trade limitations uh, and so forth. So I think I could only uh, speak, and I, and I want to stay within my areas of expertise at the very general level of principles. Uh, Marion? Yeah, I think, look, when, when facts change, you have to, or you can, you can change your views. I mean, I was a big proponent, uh, along with uh, many other people, of bringing China in uh, to the, out of the cold, into the global system. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, we have seen massive amount, not just of economic liberalization, but also of political liberalization mm -hmm. in China between 1978 and let's say the last five or seven years. China has changed for the better on, on many different ways, in many different uh, ways, but she has begun to reverse the trend. Uh, China is becoming much more, um, uh, much more of a competitor, much more of a rival. Uh, their human rights record is, uh, if anything, uh, becoming worse and so for people to start talking about readjusting our relationship with China um, maybe drawing closer to other world's democracies and decoupling our relationship with China doesn't strike me as crazy just because Donald Trump believes in that sort of thing uh, although perhaps even more in, inarticulately than I do uh, doesn't disqualify uh, the, the, the notion that uh, China is becoming a very different animal to what we were expecting to find in 2020. Um, it, during the Soviet era, uh, obviously there were a lot of restrictions on uh, how Americans and the United States and the Western world in general interacted with China. And uh, if, if China is to be a, uh, a, uh, um, a threat, uh, not just to American national interest, but also to um, uh, to uh, human rights around the world, um, bribing their way around the world and so forth. Uh, readjust, uh, adjustment and readjustment are not, are not a crazy uh, way to go about it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, we are kind of getting to, to the end of the hour, so I wanted to uh, also give the two of you um, a perspective to, to reflect on what we've discussed or if there's anything that you might have wanted to have said or questions that you might have for each other uh, to wrap up with that. Mm. Well, I am a longtime user of uh, Marion's uh, human progress site and the, and the data. So I guess my, my, my question is, uh, uh, which parts of the site have you found and what kind of human progress data uh, get the most traction and seem to be most effective? I think that people are very interested, especially in uh, GDP figures, like um, how people are, you know, long-term GDP figures. Um, uh, we always get most uh, interest in our tweets when we include, you know, showing how um, different countries have improved in terms of wealth and especially those places where it's very counterintuitive.
for example, Botswana uh, is a huge example of a very successful country. Uh, it has grown 10 times faster than, uh, than global average in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and also where you don't expect to find tremendous declines or they are very surprising. So for example, um, uh, Argentina was one of the top 10 richest countries in the world in 1900. And now it's uh, obviously declined uh, tremendously. And I, I think that people are very interested in comparing their own well-being to people elsewhere and seeing how well they are doing and where they have fallen over time or where they have triumphed, especially vis-a-vis -vis their neighbors. So I think those are the ones that are of greatest interest to people. Yeah. So it's interesting because uh, that indicates that most people are thinking that economy is the most important issue. And if we uh, uh, you know, do a fast move and then say economy, we're measuring it in terms of money, that money really is the, the proxy or the indicator that we're going to use for success, progress, well-being, and so forth. So in effect, raising the, uh, the big philosophical question about the relationship between money and happiness and whether money can buy happiness or not, it then sounds like most people you know, do believe yes. Yes, one of the, one of the uh, problems that you may have encountered, and certainly I have encountered, is not necessarily that, uh, well, the problem is that people's um, ideas are usually about 20 to 30 years out of date. So uh, very often you will come across people who will say things like, well, you know, wasn't there a guy called uh, Easterlin or something like that who showed that uh, money is unconnected to happiness? Mm. Well, yes, but that was 30 or 40 years ago. Since then, a lot of other scholars have done research on, on uh, happiness and money. Most recently, there was a study, what, only two weeks ago uh, on the subject. And indeed, it shows that as a general rule, uh, people uh, become happier when they have access to more money. And there isn't any sort of a plateauing. Um, it just keeps on going up. Um, so... Uh, that's true for individuals, but it's also true for countries. So there's a very high relationship between the two, in part because money can buy all sorts of things. It's, it's not the pursuit of money itself. It's the fact that you can buy better holidays, uh, longer holidays. You can buy better health. Uh, you can buy better education and so on and so forth. So um, it is a good indicator of the general standard of living. Right. And then to yes. cycle back to the question you were raising earlier, uh, why are some countries uh, so good at generating lots of money, whereas others are stagnant or, or, or in a decline mode? So the big question then is, what are the cultural preconditions for having society that can create a lot of money? And that's got a politics component, an economics component, a philosophy component, uh, and certainly an, uh, within that, an ethics component. Well, I mean, talking to you and to your audience, uh, this will come as no huge shock that I believe that liberty has something to do with it. Okay. Um, liberty, especially when it comes to generation of ideas, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, freedom to publish, um, it, it's a very new thing. There are these apocryphal stories about a man who brings a new invention like an unbreakable glass to a Roman emperor who immediately had him executed because it will put a lot of people out of business and things like that. Um, but the reality is that um, humanity has, been, has not been particularly responsive to new ideas for a variety of reasons until the 18th century, maybe even 17th century, 
when um, when when something dramatic happened in Europe, where um, where new ideas began to be more widely accepted. Uh, there are many different theories about why that happened. My own favorite theory is that unlike in China and many other places around the world, Europe was constituted of tiny, perpetually warring countries. And with the discovery of uh, better military technology, especially gunpowder, it became increasingly more difficult to maintain your national sovereignty. And the elites who presided over these hundreds of different European states who were constantly at war with each other really well were faced with an, with an existential question. Either we prioritize control over our societies domestically and destroy all the dissent and new ideas, but then we become vulnerable to attack from our neighbors who are more technologically developed. Or alternatively, we are going to liberalize our societies ever so gradually so that new ideas and new innovations can pop up, can grow. And that will enable us as elites to remain in power for longer. And what happened in Europe is that a lot of elites decided that they would rather have a liberal country, liberal meaning open country, internally, and retain national sovereignty than have complete control over their own citizens, but then be destroyed by more technologically progressive countries around them. And mm -hmm. I think that, that that is my favorite explanation why in Europe people began to be more open-minded about new ideas. And once you had new ideas, the ability to publish them and to discuss them and then to put them into, into reality, um, progress was able to finally take off. That's, that's great. That's, I think, Jennifer, you'll have to invite uh, Marion to come back again okay. so we can talk about that hypothesis for an hour. All right. Marion, consider yourself invited. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, thank you, uh, and thank you, Stephen. I think this was one of the most fascinating um, uh, at the Atlas Society asks ever. And um, I, uh, I want to also thank all of you who joined us on Facebook and in our Zoom uh, meeting here. Um, thank you for your great questions. Sorry, I didn't get to all of them, but we'll, I'll keep them for the next uh, conversation we'll have to, with these two gentlemen. And I just also want to thank um, everyone who, uh, who made this possible. Um, thank you for the money that funds our programs, that funds our Draw My Lives, that funds our publications. Um, we're very grateful for that, and uh, I hope to see some of you, um, I think, on Friday. We're having a happy hour with the creative team um, behind our Draw My Life. So if you'd like to meet the producer, the artists, uh, some of those, those are uh, special private meetings that we have with our donors. So thank you to our donors. If you're not a donor, no time like the present. What are you waiting for? And, uh, and we'll see you guys uh, at the next Atlas Society Asks. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks. Bye.